At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to 1 John chapter 4 this morning. Pastor Joel is going to come in the moment and deliver God's word to us, and I'm excited to hear from him. But before we do that, we wanted to take a second and read our passage together. So this morning we are in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Amen. Good morning. A little bit about me. I grew up in a family. You're probably watching right now on our live stream. I grew up in a family that was strong in the acts of service category of love if you're at all familiar with uh, the five love languages, it was written many, a number of years ago by Dr. Gary Chapman, and he describes several ways of expressing and receiving love, one of them being acts of service. And we genuinely loved each other, and we still do, and oftentimes it was seen by the way that we help one another and we help people. When I was Probably in middle school, a family moved in directly across the road from us. It was a couple, and they went on to have several daughters. And I grew up, I went away to college, I moved away from home, but while I was away, the, the couple walked through a divorce, and left in the home was the mom and the daughters. And so here they were in this house with a, a big yard and no man of the house. Enter my parents. If there was lawn equipment that was broken or an appliance that was out of whack, well, my dad tinkered with it and he either fixed it or he pointed my mom, uh, this lady, he or my mom pointed this lady in the right direction of how to get it fixed. Remodeling or changing something in the house, I'm pretty sure that my parents poured a lot of sweat equity into that house just like they did ours. They were Rarely using the words, I love you or we love you, to this family, and yet there's no doubt in my mind that that is what was communicated and received between the two of them. To this day, though my parents retired and they live elsewhere, there's a, a genuine affection and fondness between them. And the times that they have been able to see each other, it's, uh, it's, there's joy and there's catching up and there's uh, affection. So why take on somebody else's home projects and their problems? Well, it's not just because of my parents' incredible work ethic. 
for which I'm very grateful. But I think they were merely following in the way of Jesus. They always have. You know, Jesus was the son of a carpenter. He knew how to sweat. He knew how to work hard, get his hands dirty. And in his, in his earthly ministry, we saw he always had a gentle and a meek word for the people that he interacted with. He always had something to say, to encourage, and to help, and to challenge them in love. My parents were demonstrating God's love through their action. Well, we've begun this new year, 2021, by jumping into 1 John in a series that we've called The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again. And this morning, I am purposefully choosing to take the posture of sitting down because I want this I want, it, I want it to feel a bit more like a conversation that we're having in our family room. This is a, a giant family room together. And I want to chat through some, through some things that I have wrestled with over the last number of weeks and months, but especially this week. Because when I look back over the last year, we've gone through quite a number of deep waters, haven't we? We've lived through one of the most contentious elections we have endured a global pandemic that has seen many people die, no longer with us. And even in the last two months, um, it's been pretty unprecedented, the experiences that we've had collectively as a country. So here we are, sitting together as the family of God in our big family room, seeking to learn from and hear from the Holy Spirit through his word and have a word of hope and, and challenge for us today. And so I want to begin this conversation with you really to my own heart by remembering that as God's people, we are called to love in ways that cut across the grain of our culture, that don't always feel natural to us and our personalities, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're called to love through difficulty and to do more than just love, to show it through sacrificial love and to live on mission by loving our neighbors. Well, when I began preparing for this morning, I thought, I, I, do want, I want to understand a little bit of what John was uh, experiencing and what this church was experiencing, what would cause him to write this letter. And so if you read a study Bible or a commentary, we're told that this letter came on the heels of a bit of an exodus from the local church. People left the church. And we have a little hint earlier in 1 John 2.19 where John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So these believers saw a number of people not only leave their gatherings, but they also left the faith. They walked away from the faith. And so, as one commentator has written, John, through his epistle, is calling people back to the three basics of Christian living. It's true doctrine, it's obedient living, and it's fervent devotions, fervent devotion to the world around us. And I was struck by the similarities of then and now, because John was encouraging and he was challenging these believers that saw people that they 
probably loved and worshipped alongside of, that they shared life together. Remember, these were more house churches than they were uh, auditorium style where everybody's seated in the same direction looking at one person. And so they saw people leave that. And he encouraged them and challenged them. But how? What did he say? Well, he said, lean in to love. It's a similar experience that we've had the last 10 months. We've seen the same. People walk away from church. Now hear me out. Not everybody who chooses not to sit in this room or watches online has walked away from the faith. That's not what I'm I'm claiming. There are lots of people who just aren't comfortable physically being here and we love them, we respect them, we honor that decision. I'm also not claiming that everybody who is seated in this room is a genuine follower and demonstrator of our faith. Because we know it's not about showing up and sitting in a seat. We know better than that. But amid all of the disruption that we have experienced in these number of months of fighting this pandemic, the American church has been experiencing a sifting. A sifting. And we haven't just seen it at Woodside Farmington Hills. It's been a problem on a larger scale, such that the Barna Group, which is a group that tracks faith and values of churches, they published at the end of December their 2020 year in review article on the state of the church. My brother-in-law sent me the article at the beginning of, of January, and I read it, was fascinated by it, and I want to share just a few of the sobering observations You can see them up on the screen here. One in three practicing Christians has stopped attending church during COVID-19. So think about that. One-third of practicing Christians has neither attended in person or checked out the live stream of their church or done the church hopping, shopping to check out another church. A third. The share of practicing Christians has nearly dropped in half since 2000. So as of last year, 2020, about one in four Americans qualified as a practicing Christian. So you might ask, in these last 20 years, what happened to the other half? Well, excuse me, what happened to the, to the other uh, amount? And the data indicate that half of them have essentially fell away from consistent faith engagement. So they've moved into what Barna calls the non-practicing Christian segment, which I wonder, is that even a thing? But they wrote it. They're the experts. The other half then moved into the non-Christian segment, walked away from the faith. And then the third observation that just struck me, I'll share this morning, churchgoers are divided on the value of church. So the article quoted the president of Barna who said this, those who frequent worship services do so largely because of personal enjoyment. But many churchgoers also readily admit that they believe people are tired of church as usual. Wow. Woof. Let that sink in. That's the world, the the country, the environment in which we live in. So you can understand how the conversation I had to have with myself these last couple of weeks and that I want to have with you is that More than ever, it's good and it's right for us to lean in to see what did the Holy Spirit inspire the Apostle John to write to encourage these believers and to call us to faith 
and to call us to obedience and call us to love. So we're going to walk through these six verses, and we want to see, because it's how John laid it out, how all three members of the Trinity help to point out that God is love. He's love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all play a role in this and help us to understand it. So love begins with the Father. If you're in your Bible, we're in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He starts with a beautiful word, beloved. Which, what grace for us to be reminded of our identity for those who have been born again. Our identity and our reminder of the intimacy and the relationship that we have that is unique with our Creator and our Heavenly Father. You know, beloved is just a simple word, but it carries a deep and a very special meaning. We know and we affirm, as Pastor Jacob has already prayed and talked about, we affirm all of life has value. All of life has dignity because of the Imago Dei. We're all made in God's image. And so, to some extent, each one of us is a reflection of what God is like. But it's only for those who have been born again, who have been given a bit of his nature. And God, in his very divine nature at the core, is love. He authored it, he originated it, it was his idea. And he implanted it in us because we have his nature. And so John emphasizes here that God, by God's grace, believers are empowered to love God because he talks about it. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and indwells us. What's interesting is when you look through this passage, love is the distinctive mark of the believer. If you want to know what's really going on in somebody's soul, you look at, are they loving? What does it look like? How is it playing out? That's an indication of what's really going on the inside. Remember, John wrote to a group of believers that saw people leave their gatherings and leave the faith. And he challenges those who remain to demonstrate faith by loving he doesn't say, dig into all the scriptures and understand and learn better and know better, although that's very important. He actually says, love, live it out, demonstrate it. And man, if that isn't a word for us in the 21st century. We have more Bibles. We have more theological books. We have more faith-based resources and blogs and podcasts and websites and writings than at any point in the history of Christianity. And while it's debatable if our theology has actually improved over the forefathers, those who wrote centuries ago, it's debatable, the call for us to demonstrate love remains, remains central for us to live out our faith. This call and this exhortation was so important that it was among the last counsel that Jesus gave his disciples in his final hours. Remember, he said to his disciples in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is why we encourage everybody who calls Woodside their home to be part of a life group, 
to belong to a smaller spiritual community and family so that we can practice our love for one another. We can practice it for the family members. And so that believers can experience the warm embrace, or maybe it's just an elbow bump right now, but the tangible actions of fellow believers. I got to see this play out earlier this spring, or summer, I'm not sure which, but there was a, a couple in our life group that experienced a layoff, and they saw a drop in their income. And they were starting to worry, and it was somebody else from our life group that just kind of said privately to the rest of us, Hey, what could we do? Grocery gift cards, or could we help them out somehow? And it was amazing to see the generosity of others in our spiritual family lavish, lavish them and help them. That is love in action. They were surprised. But that's what belonging to a family is about, right? So if love is originated, it's begun by the Father, we see next in this passage that love is personified in the Son, in Jesus. Look at verse 9 with me, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So John is saying here, you want to know what love looks like? Jesus. Love equals Jesus. That's the picture of love. God the Father sent his son into the world on a mission. On a mission from heaven. And the Father was so motivated by love, he missed the fellowship and the intimacy that he had with his prized creation that was lost in the garden when sinful humankind rejected, they turned their back on God. There was a break, and God's heart was broken. And it was out of love that the mission was given to Jesus to go and to seek and save that which is lost and to redeem sinful humankind. Furthermore, it's John who uses the term the only Son, God's only Son, to communicate this unique position that Jesus had over all other beings. He is one of a kind. Nobody else can do it. And so it reveals to us the magnitude that God took his one of a kind Son and sent him to do the only thing that needed to be done to restore sinful humankind. Out of sacrificial love, he sent Jesus had to take place because of this great chasm that existed between a holy and a righteous God and sinful mankind. An atoning sacrifice had to be made to pay the bill. Warren Wearsby wrote in his commentary in 1 John that under the old covenant, God was hidden behind the shadows and the ritual and ceremony. So the Old Testament depicts this intricate system of sacrifices that God provided for the purpose of atonement. But the New Testament outlines this new covenant manifested or seen in Jesus' death on the cross that served as the atonement. Paul reminds us numerous times throughout the the New Testament of this reality. For example, in Romans 5.11, we read, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he finishes later in 2 Corinthians by praising him and saying, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Jesus was sent by the Father to sacrifice his life so that others might live. This is the greatest gift imaginable. You know, when suffering and tragedy comes, our default response is often to question and to wonder. We wonder, how can God let evil happen? I thought he was a God of love. Why? It doesn't make sense. Well, in 2006, on the fifth anniversary of the terrorist attack in New York City, there was a a service of remembrance that was held right across the street from Ground Zero at Trinity Church. And among the, those who spoke to the families of the victims, those who um, had volunteered and the first responders who had jumped in, and all the dignitaries who came to that service was Pastor Tim Keller. And I'm moved by the grace and the truth that he shared when he shared the gospel in a moment that must have been raw emotion and memory and pain still five years out from all of this loss. And so I want to read just a couple of um, quotes from this. One of the great themes, Keller said, of the New Testament, uh, excuse me, of the Hebrew Scriptures is that God identifies with the suffering. There are all these great texts that are saying that God binds up his heart so closely with suffering people. But Christianity says, he goes even beyond that. Christians believe that in Jesus, God's son, divinity, became vulnerable to and involved in suffering and death. But it is only on the cross that we see the ultimate wonder. On the cross, we sufferers finally see, to our shock, that God now knows, too, what it is to lose a loved one in an unjust attack. Yes, we don't know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue but we know what the reason isn't, what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. God so loved us and hates suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. The death of Jesus, this act of suffering and pain, sacrifice, injustice, was for two purposes, according to what John said. Verse 9 tells us it was so that we might live through him. So there's an indication of death apart from him. And there's an invitation to aliveness in him. Both physical and spiritual. Yes, our bodies wear down. We get old. We feel the aches and the pains. We receive diagnoses. We die. But because of the hope of what's promised to believers, because Jesus rose from the grave, there will be a tangible and physical restoration and resurrection. So there is going to be physical life through him for eternity, but it's also certainly spiritual. Because when we receive Christ, when someone is born again, we receive full and abundant life through Jesus now and forevermore. Amen. But secondly, in verse 10, John writes, He, God, sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Man, that's a $5 theological word there. Propitiation. God's holiness and law required a sacrifice because of our sin. And it was satisfied on Jesus' death on the cross. Propitiation is not about an angry God sitting in heaven. It's actually satisfying his holy law. That's what it's about. And the incredible and the mind-blowing reality is that God is the one who set up the law in the first place. He said, this is the standard. My holiness is the standard. It has to be maintained. He wasn't the one who didn't maintain that. It was us. And yet God took it upon himself in the form of Jesus to actually pay that debt. God established it and God also paid for it. It wasn't for me, my good looks. It wasn't my, what I bring to the table. It wasn't my resolve. It wasn't anything. I didn't have enough in my bank account to pay that amount. It was done on my behalf, out of love. The only way to really apply this portion of 1 John is to respond to the call of the gospel in your own heart and in your own mind. Begin by admitting to God that you're a sinner. There is this gap, this chasm that you can't make up. Nothing in you can make it up. There's a distance that stands between you and a holy God. Recognizing that it's only through the atonement of Jesus' work on the cross, God sending his son to you, that the penalty is paid so that you may be set free. And seeing that Jesus gives us a way to experience new life, everything comes alive because of that, because of Jesus' perfect life that he lived in his earthly ministry, and because of his sacrifice on that cross, and because he was raised to life, we can have life. The dead is now alive. And we respond when we repent of our sin. We turn away from it. We place our faith in that atoning work, Jesus' work in our place. And we confess him as Lord, as leader, as manager, as the head of our life. We place our faith in him, his life, his death, his resurrection, everything that he stood for. We are made new and we are born of God, as John puts it. And I wonder, there's a bunch of people in this room. There's a bunch of people watching online. And it makes me wonder, in the quietness of your own soul, is this something that you have done? Are you no longer dead to the sin that holds you captive? Are you alive because of what Jesus did on your behalf? Maybe you just need to be reminded of it. Maybe you have received Christ as Savior and you need to be reminded of the gospel spoken over you again and again and again. I need that every Sunday. You know what? I'm going to position myself in that front lobby after we dismiss and Pastor Jacob is going to be around as well. If you don't know the love of God, if you've not become alive because of what Christ did on the cross, I want to talk to you about it. I want to pray with you. I want to start a conversation so that you know and are encouraged and strengthened. So if we began with love from the Father, and we have seen how it was manifested, it was played out by Jesus in his life, we want to see how it's perfected in the Holy Spirit. We're going to end with verses 11 and 12. So let me open it up here and read it for us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John's closing argument on love is this. Because of God's great love for us, we, believers, are called to demonstrate that, to love one another. It's not rocket science. Probably not earth-shattering to you today. But God's love is both the reason that we love one another, but it's also the resource that we're given to love one another because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Believers are empowered to love. And John calls Christians to a faith that reveals itself. It actually demonstrates it. It shows it through loving action. Many of our life groups have been reading through the book Placed for a Purpose, which is a supplement to this series. And this past Wednesday on our Zoom call, my life group shared some conversation around the parable of the Good Samaritan that we read about in Luke 10. And the authors teased out this conversation between the the Old Testament theological expert who questioned Jesus, and he said, who is my neighbor? Jesus, in his good fashion, proceeded to tell a story that many of us are familiar with about the two devout Jewish men who passed by and did not help a a dying and wounded countryman laying on the road. And the unexpected hero of the story is a culturally inferior man who cared for the wounded man in a generous and pretty shocking way. I don't know how long it took for him to be healed and cared for. I don't know how much money it took. But that culturally inferior foreigner took it upon himself. And so Jesus ends with that, that story by asking the question from Luke 10, 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responded, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You know, the challenging part of our discussion was asking some hard questions. What if I don't want to love somebody? There are those people I really don't want to love. My wife knows. What are you laughing for? You've got them too. Do I actually have eyes and ears to be able to see the wounded and dying person that I'm just kind of skirting around? Am I slowing down and taking time to pay attention and to listen to the Spirit. So if I've been given the Holy Spirit, am I listening? Can I hear? Who is he leading me toward? You know, it's pretty significant that we have the Holy Spirit in us. It's a great privilege and a gift that many, many generations of God's children did not get to experience as we do. In verse 12, he he writes, John writes, no one has ever seen God. That feels kind of random, just dropped in the middle of here. And yet, John is making a point. God's presence, his dwelling, has looked differently. It's been experienced differently over time. Let me do a quick flyover. If we remember, because of what we're told in Genesis, Adam and Eve experienced an intimacy and a beautiful, tangible relationship with the Lord before sin arrived. They talked with him. They had proximity to him. 
We're told that there were specific men who walked with God. Enoch, Genesis 5.22, walked with God. Noah, in Genesis 6.9, walked with God. Abraham, in a couple of times, walked with God. Now, candidly, I don't know how this actually worked. But Scripture tells us they walked with God, but it also says, God says in Exodus, man shall not see me and live. So, put it on my list of more questions to ask when I get to heaven. Exodus 13 tells us that as Israel was leaving Egypt, the Lord's presence appeared by day in a pillar of cloud and by night a pillar of fire to give them warmth and sight in the dark desert. Moses and the people eventually constructed a tabernacle based on God's instructions and it says in Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it took the form of a cloud just like it did then when you fast forward and there was the permanent temple and in 1 Kings 8 with the Ark of the Covenant there, God's glory came down on it as a cloud. Well, when we move into the New Testament, God himself arrives. The one born in a manger, flesh and blood. Jesus, fully divine and fully human, was the physical presence of God on this earth for a short time. And after Jesus returned to heaven, we couldn't see God anymore. But they waited in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which would indwell all believers. So God's very presence now lives, John says, it abides in the lives of those of us who have been born of God and who love God. So here is John challenging and teaching us that our lives and our love show people what God is like, like a mirror. Jacob asked a similar question in his message a few weeks ago. If people looked at your life, the way you treat people, how you spend your time, what is your life and your love showing about what God is like? And if Jesus' words to the pride-filled, pompous, self-righteous lawyer in Luke 10 was, you go and do likewise, I'm pretty sure I fit that category too. So do we all. I wonder, are we loving and caring about others as Jesus did himself for you? He modeled, he personified love. Do you have the heart and the eyes and the mind of Christ for the people that you interact with? We get what we need to go and do likewise, following in the ways of Jesus, because God does something in us by his spirit. He changes us. There's something going on. And by his spirit, we are tethered. We're tethered to the truth of who God is and what he's done and what he's doing in us. And it should be a, a progressive thing. Praise God I'm not the same person that I was when I first came to Christ. Praise God that there's forward momentum and some steps back along the way. But when we understand this, we don't actually have to muster, oh, I gotta love that person. Better do it. It's not mustering love for someone. We embrace the same mission that Jesus lived out. Yes, it takes sacrifice. And yes, it takes humility and uncomfortability, but we 
seek those who are lost. We seek those who are different from us. And we act as agents of reconciliation, living as salt and light where God has placed us. So it's a challenge for us to consider as we head into the week. We go to our subdivisions or our apartment complexes, our classrooms, our cubicles, our virtual offices, wherever we play and work and spend our time. And the gospel goes in you. Did you know that? Every person you encounter has the opportunity to see, to hear, and to respond to the gospel because the gospel goes in you. They don't have to come here and hear some pastor say it. They see it in your life. It's a mirror because they've come in contact with you. And you know, they're not going to agree with everything that we say. They're not going to like everything that, they, that we say. They, they may not see eye to eye with us, but they should see a picture of who God is because of you and because of me. And they should be the, the recipients of generous love and grace and truth and good works. It's motivated because we have the Holy Spirit in us. Friends, don't be the statistic that I read earlier. Don't walk away from faith. Don't slide back. Don't miss out on what God is doing both in your life by the Holy Spirit, but also what we're doing collectively together as a spiritual family, as Woodside Farmington Hills. Lean in, grow in your understanding of who God is and what he is. It's love. And be rooted in his love and his mission to work out your faith through love. Heavenly Father, we only love because you loved us first. Thank you for the model of love. Thank you that it was demonstrated through the pages from Genesis to Revelation. May not have always looked like love from a human perspective, but it was your divine mission to love and to live in such a way that it communicated that tangibly on the cross. You give us such grace and mercy and second and third and 500th chances when we fall short. And so we invite your Holy Spirit more and more into our lives so that we see people the way that Jesus saw them. How would Jesus live if he lived in 2021 in Metro Detroit? What would he talk about? What would he say? What would he do? How would he encourage? What words would he have for people? And we want to be marked by that. I need your help. We need your help. Thank you for giving it to us in the Holy Spirit. May we be found faithful until the day that we see you face to face, which we are greatly looking forward to. All this we pray and lift up in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.